come before the Lord in a prayer for illumination. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, all men are like grass, but your word stands forever. We are grateful, Lord, that we have now opportunity to take a moment for opening that word and reading it, more than that, for meditating on it. And it is our earnest prayer, Lord, that this word would penetrate deep within our hearts, planting a seed there that would bear much fruit to the glory of your name. So keep us from distraction, keep us from sleepiness, keep us from the temptations of this world, and help us to hear the good news of the gospel afresh and anew, and so put our trust again in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Turn with me then to Leviticus, or sorry, Luke chapter 2. We'll start in Luke. Our New Testament reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, verse, or chapter 2, verse 22. You can find that on page 1019, 1019, Luke chapter 2. We're going to read from 22 to 38, which is actually after the events of Christmas Jesus has been born, Jesus has been circumcised, so that's the eighth day. And then there was also a time when the law of Moses demanded purification for Mary be made, and they present Jesus at the temple for that. We're going to read how that occurred in Jesus' life, page 1019 in our Pew Bibles. And then we're going to turn to the law of Moses and to the passage that established this requirement. So Luke 2, verse 22, hear the word of God. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Thus far, the reading of Luke 2, then page 106, page 106, Leviticus chapter 12. Now, 
It's verse 8 that will be our text, but we'll read all of chapter 12 together. So page 106. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for sixty-six days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, And then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she can't afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, it may seem a bit of an odd passage for a Christmas service, for an Advent service. We've been looking at Advent services over the past number of weeks, this being the fourth, uh, that are less than uh, obvious. They are not the Advent services that you, you think of, like David's final words in 2 Samuel 23, or uh, like uh, Eve's naming Cain, Cain, and what that all indicated, and even last week in Psalm 16. And now here in Leviticus 2, it seems like a strange passage to have as an Advent sermon. And maybe it is. Uh, it, it, uh, uh, it came to my attention in a couple of ways. Uh, we were visiting with uh, some of our kids and for devotions uh, at dinner, we read this passage and it stuck in my mind then. It stuck in my mind in part because I'd been given a lovely little book entitled uh, A Theology of Periods and not the, the, the uh, language ones, not the syntactical ones, the ones are, that are addressed in Leviticus chapter 12. Uh, and, and in anticipation for next week on Christmas morning I was reading through Luke 2 and then we I came again to that passage dealing with that that rather difficult that very uh, shocking somewhat embarrassing maybe topic of the cleanness of women uh, post-birth and it struck me then having uh, had these three sort of moments of of interacting with this passage that that maybe the Lord was directing me to it and it needed to be thought of it needed to be discussed it needed to be looked into and so uh, that's what I started to do and in doing so came to again see the glory of Christmas began to see again the baby born on Christmas morning and I saw that baby or that baby came to be shown through this text um, because there there is a rather important principle at work here 
an imprint, a principle that is familiar in the Old Testament that's actually rather strongly taught of in this section of the book of Leviticus dealing with cleanliness or being clean and unclean. Now, clean and unclean in the Bible are not words that have anything really to do, well, maybe a little bit, but not much to do with hygiene. That is, it's not your mom saying to you, wash your hands before dinner so that they're clean. There is instead a ritual significance to these words. There is a spiritual, a worship significance to them. That indeed these words were a reminder that the world itself is so tainted with sin that earthly blessings cannot overcome it. Now to understand that you have to at least take a moment to look at the, the, the big picture here of clean and unclean. Clean and unclean aren't even moral terms necessarily. That is, God, when He says something clean, isn't saying it's better or unclean, that it's worse. That clean is good and unclean is wicked. Rather, God was using these terms to teach Israel uh, to look to Him. To look to Him for salvation. To understand why that is, you've got to go back to the beginning. And you've got to go back to how God made everything good. God made everything exactly the way it was. And the orange tree, when it, when, it, when it blossomed and bore fruit, oranges came. And the apple tree, when it blossomed and bore fruit, apples came. And, and, and animals were exactly what they were supposed to be. They lived according to their kinds. And they functioned according to the standard that God gave them. And everything was good, very good, says God. Until man sinned. And man then brought everything in creation, in all of life, under the curse of sin. Cursed shall be your childbirth. Cursed shall be your relationships. Cursed shall be the ground because of you, says God. And in that moment, the curse of God spread like, a, like an ash, like a dust that touched everything. It gets into everything. Every nook and cranny gets affected by the power of God's curse against sin. But we don't always see that, you see. We have this problem where we don't always see the reality of sin's curse. We, we tend to diminish sin. We tend to make it a small thing. We say sin is this choice that you and I make. It's when we get angry. It's when we swear. It's when we lie. And, and we do those things. That's sin. And we forget that, that there is a curse that, that just lays on everything so that nothing works the way it's supposed to. Nothing fulfills the purpose for which God had intended it as it was originally intended to do. There is a twist, you might say. There's a brokenness. There is a deviation in all of life from the good that God made in the beginning. So that the fall into sin didn't just make people do bad things. It also affected creation in all its beauty and extent. Which is now why it bears the mark of the curse upon it. And the words clean and unclean helped Israel learn that. Understand that. Because when God said the pig is unclean. He wasn't saying pigs were bad. He wasn't saying they were unhygienic. He wasn't saying that they were wrong to eat. That is, that somehow eating them would cause you to get sick or something like that and, and, and make you suffer. He was saying that, that, that animal has cloven hooves, but 
doesn't chew the cud. You say, well, what difference does that make? Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The way it's supposed to be is if you have a chewing of the cud animal, if you have a ruminant, it's supposed to have cloven hooves. So if you have one that chews the cud but no cloven hooves, that's a problem. There's something wrong there. Just like with fish. Fish are supposed to have scales. Fish are supposed to swim in the ocean with those, with those glittery scales on their sides. So if you pull a fish out of the ocean that doesn't have scales... There's something wrong, God says. That's not right. That's not the way it's supposed supposed to be. That's unclean. Not because there's something inherently wrong with it, but because I want you to see that there's something different, that there's something broken, that there's something twisted. Think of vultures. Think of eagles. Think of these birds of prey. God says, you may not eat them. You're not allowed to have them. Why not? Because they live amongst death. The stench of death is on them. And you may not touch anything dead. You may not have anything to do with the decaying and the dead because of the curse of sin. Because that is wicked. That is, that is what you brought into this world. Death and judgment. That is what we, what we declare unclean. Everything associated with death is unclean. Because the connection to the curse was upon it. The smell of sin hung on it. And that offended the Lord. And that reminded God's people that they lived in a world of brokenness. That even though in the morning the sun shines brightly and it's beautiful, even though everything seems to be going exactly the way it should, there is a brokenness in this life that you can't escape. By teaching his people to distinguish between clean and unclean, the Lord was teaching them to see that the problem of this world wasn't just that we make mistakes and if we could just stop making mistakes, it would be okay. It's that there is a blanket of of judgment upon all of life. And life isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's broken, twisted, deformed. And it needs redeeming, reformation, reformatting, and restoration Life itself needs a Savior. But isn't that exactly what Leviticus 12 is at least talking about? That is, the promise of a Savior? After all, the birth of every child in Israel was a testimony that God's faithfulness was progressing. That His plan, whereby He gave already in the beginning the promise of a Son, was progressing. Every birth was a reminder that God was keeping His covenant. That was especially true for sons. Sons were an especial reminder that God was going to send a Savior. Maybe that's why in Leviticus 12 there is one rule for sons and one rule for daughters. The uncleanness of a mother lasted twice as long if she had a daughter than if she had a son. You say, well, why is that? doesn't seem fair. That seems to be so patriarchal and that seems to be so misogynistic and all the rest. But it may just have been that God was saying, remember, there's a son coming. There's a Savior coming. The one who's going to deliver you from all of this. He's coming. And surely every birth that Israel enjoyed and experienced was itself a reminder of this. For the birth of a child, fearfully and wonderfully made, is the hope that in the misery of all of life, there can be a happiness. That there can be a blessing. 
amongst all the pain. And that in the darkness of this world, there is still light. In that moment, when any mother holds a newborn child, whatever the future holds isn't important, whatever the past pain experienced is forgotten, in that moment, there is just joy. So how could God say to a mother in that moment, now you're unclean. Now, now you represent the brokenness of this life. On the one hand, chapter 15 will help us here by teaching us how bodily discharges make someone unclean. And without getting into too much detail, it becomes clear that the physical act of bringing forth a child makes a mother unclean. It is, after all, for the mother that the offering has to be made in Leviticus 12. And so we are reminded that in that moment, says the Lord, that there is an uncleanness even here. Now, we don't have to go to Leviticus 15 to remember that. We can just go back to Genesis 3, verse 16 to remember that. Because there the Lord also promised the woman that in the bringing forth of children, the curse of sin would wrench from her cries of pain. If being unclean is just another way of saying connected to or twisted by the curse, then it's not hard to see how the delivery of a child, how the pain of childbearing is the reminder of the curse. Yet, there was such wonderful new life that this pain produced. I mean, it was painful, of course, but it was worth it, right? So why would the Lord in that moment of such joy speak so hard a word as unclean? Taking what we know about the categories of clean and unclean, we can say that the mother was being reminded that even in this moment of greatest joy, there was a brokenness that lay upon this most blessed of events. The birth of a child. The reminder that God's faithfulness, that powerful promise of life that was coming, that this moment was not enough. That this, that this moment was unclean. A reminder to her that this child she just delivered cannot overcome sin. A testimony that no matter how good she might be as a person, a wife, a, a mother, or a woman in the community, she, like all of humanity, was touched with sin and unclean. And though she did what only women can do, so miraculous and wonderful a thing as bring forth life, this precious new life with all of its promise that it provided for mother and for father, for love and joy, this child, who if he was a son, promised security and safety. God in this moment says to the woman, don't look at this child because this child is not enough. You need to be made clean from this moment. For even this is touched by the curse. 
even this moment, needs a Savior. Oh yes, it needs a Savior. She had to go to the temple. She had to bring a lamb without spot or blemish. And if she couldn't afford that, she had to bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. Even this moment, says God, needs to be redeemed. And that's a word to all of us, it seems to me. A word to all of us who are touched by the sinfulness of this fallen world. There is in this text a big word that needs reflecting on. A reminder that the effects of sin are so much worse than just poor choices here and there. A bad word spoken, a careless act committed. We tend to make the pain of sin small like that. Something that we can control. Something that we can stop anytime. Or maybe don't even need to because it's really not that big a deal. After all, the world is so full of promise and joy and blessing. Do we really need to hear this constant talk about sin and misery and darkness? You know, if we just stop going to church, if we stop listening to all of this sin talk, life doesn't get worse. It gets better. The sun still shines. The birds still sing. The joys of life are are still joyful. Well, sort of. I mean, there's still pain, of course. There's still frustration. There's still disease. There's still a general pointlessness to life that robs us of meaning. But you know what? Everybody suffers that. But we don't need to be told how to live our lives. We don't need to be told what to do. We don't need to be told that we're in need of a Savior every day, every week, every time again. No, thank you very much. Just let us enjoy life. Don't you hear people say that? Don't you hear people that leave the church say that? Why should I go to church where all those hypocrites are? Why should I go to church where all I'm told is that I'm bad? Where should I go to church? Why should I go to church? When life is good without all of that guilt and shame. But what if the story of this life is bigger than just the mistakes we make? What if the problem with this life is not only that we are selfish, arrogant, proud, greedy, and all the rest, but what if the problem of this life is that there lies upon everything a smell, a weakness, a burden, a curse? What if everything in this life is like so much of what we find in the dollar store? When we're young and naive, All of those toys in the dollar store look so lovely. And they're cheap. They're they're easily bought. But soon after we've brought them home, they break. Life would be so much better if they didn't break so quickly. But you see, that's life, isn't it? It does break quickly. We feel it in our bones. We feel it in the seasonal illnesses of this time of the year. We feel it in relational tensions in our homes and in our marriages. We feel it in financial stresses. We feel it in our minds. We feel it in our spirits. We feel it in everything. Everything reminds us that in this life, something's wrong. But instead of turning to God for deliverance from a problem that is obviously far too big for us, we sadly tend to look to our demigods, our idols, our creaturely hopes for deliverance. Is it not possible, even in a community like ours, that there might be a young woman among us, a young man among us, 
who believes that getting married will deliver them. That for the young man, it'll deliver him from his addiction to porn. If I get married, then that will be done. I won't have that problem anymore for the young woman. That it'll make her life meaningful. Is it not possible in a community full like ours with young children and new life that we can believe that having a baby will save us? That is, make life purposeful, joyful, and good. Maybe that's not it. Maybe it's if our business succeeds. Maybe if it's the right drug to beat this illness. Maybe it's a full happy table at Christmas Day. Maybe it's respected by those around us. Maybe it's all sorts of things because we turn everything into this life. All of the good things that God created into our idols which cannot stand up under the pressure and the demand of saving us. They're not strong enough. They can't do it. Have you never met someone who needs respect? Needs it so bad that they annoy and frustrate those around them with their incessant need of admiration. Have you never met someone who seems so desperate to get married they chose the absolutely worst partner to fix up with? Have you never seen sinners try to find blessing and redemption in earthly ways at the bottom of a bottle, at the end of a, of a, of a, a joint, who, who have forgotten the lesson ultimately of Leviticus 12 and of clean and unclean, who forgot that God taught us already a long time ago that we can't find deliverance in those moments that seem to us of such joy. Oh yes, we think, we think, if this just happens, then my life will be good. But God says, no. Look up, He says, look up and see my Son, which is the hope you have. Mary, or uh, rather the woman of Leviticus 12, was commanded to bring two turtle doves if she was poor, which is the offering that Joseph and Mary bring to the temple for Jesus. No two turtle doves could ever have undone the curse of sin that lay upon the world like dust. But this offering was made to teach God's people that every time a child was born, every time someone thought that having a child would make everything better, this offering reminded them it wouldn't. With every sacrifice after the birth of a child, the Lord was proclaiming in clear words, this child, this good thing, is not enough to save you. Yet there was also in that very provision of a sacrifice, in the very demand that they bring this offering, a promise. After all, why would God demand His people do something that He also knew wouldn't save them? He knew that two turtle doves wouldn't save them. He knew that two pigeons wouldn't save them. After all, those offerings, like all of the offerings of the Old Testament, were placeholders, 
pictures of something to come, thumbnail sketches of a glorious story of redemption. The ceremonial laws, you'll remember, were like little gospel messages that pointed forward to their fulfillment. Every offering uh, offered in fulfillment of Leviticus 12, verse 8, was God saying to his people, not yet. The not part is the part that's hard for us because we want to believe that this life, this moment, this joy is enough for us. But God says, no, it's not. Not this. No, not yet. But the yet, you see, the yet holds promise. Because if it's not yet, then there's something still coming. Which is to say that the very repetition of this offering, the very requirement that every mother bring an offering on behalf of her uncleanness after her birth or the birth of her child, every time they did that, the repetition of it declared that there was a day coming when that placeholder, those two turtle doves, that lamb, those two pigeons, would no longer be necessary and that a solution to the brokenness of life would come. Indeed, that's the remarkable thing about Mary's sacrifice, isn't it? In, in a very real way, we might say, not literally, of course, but in a very real way, we could say, Mary's the last mother to have to bring this sacrifice. Because she brings it bearing the one who was the answer to this problem of sin's curse. Who is the better sacrifice? Not the offering of poverty that she brought, but the offering of power that would lift the curse. That offering wasn't yet made, of course. The birth of the baby is not enough. Christmas is not enough. We need Good Friday. We need Easter Sunday. Mary wasn't clean yet. Ritually, she is by bringing her two turtle doves, but the weight of the curse still rests on her. She needed the offering to be made on her behalf, too even as we all need the offering to be made on our behalf too. Don't you see, that's exactly why we get to celebrate Christmas. That's what makes Christmas so wonderful, is it's the end of all of those ceremonial laws. It's the end of all, or it's the beginning of the end, of all of those reminders, placeholders, of all of those not yets. Because now Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. A greater redemption than any two turtle doves could ever bring has been brought, than any child could bring, than any marriage could bring, than any joy in this life could bring. A salvation that lifts the curse so perfectly that the blessing of the redeeming work of Christ flows as far as the curse is found. Clean and unclean taught the extent of the sin's curse on the world. Jesus' redeeming work is as extensive as we will be singing next week on Christmas morning. He came to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. We experience this, by the way, in many wonderful ways already. We experience this in the simple act of eating pork. Every time you have bacon, you are celebrating the redeeming work of Christ. After all, Christ lifted the clean and unclean distinction by His sacrifice for the world. God was saying, everything's been redeemed. Yes, even that pig. 
Of course, even more wonderfully, we enjoy the freedom that Christ's sacrifice brings, freedom from the power of the curse so that we now can live our lives in all aspects of them to the glory of God. We experience the redeeming work of Christ in our relationships. We experience it in freedom and in peace. We experience it in wealth and wellness. We experience Christ's saving work so that we live in this glorious new world in such a way that we can enjoy, celebrate, and rejoice in the wonders of His love in every aspect of life. We tend to disconnect the creational blessings of life from the cross of Calvary, but we mustn't. We must see that they are also the outflowing of what was accomplished by the baby born on Christmas morning. And even more blessings are still coming. On this side of the cross, there is a frailty that is exposed in the beauty of life. There is still a brokenness in our lives that we experience, but Christ is coming and when He does, the power of His grace will restore all of this wonderful creation so that no part of it will be tainted with sin anymore. What a day to long for. What a day to look forward to. If we really want to enjoy the blessings of this life, we need to stand on the new heavens and the new earth. And the only way we can get there is if we stand in Jesus Christ. This power, however, is entirely within the person and work of Jesus. We cannot expect or experience this blessing in any other way than through faith in Him. For some, this is too much of a contradiction. Oh, we want a happy life. We want blessings. But to have to look beyond this life to the right hand of God to get them, that seems impossible. Oh, we want to gain life. Yes, we do, but we have to lose our life first. That seems too much. And isn't Jesus really just about after we die? Isn't the key of the gospel the forgiveness of sin so that we get to go to heaven? Jesus doesn't really do anything for my day-to-day activities, does he? Jesus isn't for work. He's not for school. He's not for sports. He's not for government. He's not for my sexuality. Except that He is. His saving work lifts the curse of sin from every part of life. From the spiritual and the physical. From our souls and our bodies. From our heavenly worship and our earthly work. And that is what the birth of this baby on Christmas morning ought to give us. It ought to give us such a perspective on life that we see a joy in Him in everything. That we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross where we find our hope, our fullness, and our joy? If we want a full life, if we want a whole life, if we want to experience all that this life has to offer, Are we convinced that the only place we can find it is in the crucified baby born on Christmas morning? Do we know the full significance of His saving power? That moment of history, do we know it in our personal lives? That is, are we resting in the saving work of Christ so that His work is enough for our happiness, for our joy, for our thanksgiving. Are we, are we resting 
in the confidence that Christ's work is enough. Even if we've been given nothing else, it's enough. Some of us need to embrace this first, most basic step in response to the good news of Christmas. Some of us today are here trying to find happiness and wholeness in ways that are outside of Jesus Christ. And if we're not already, then soon enough we will be suffering and frustrated because what we think can hold up our hopes and dreams is just dust in the wind. So turn to the one whose sacrifice is enough. Some of us need to remind ourselves that our faith, what our faith in Christ means. We believe in one who died on the cross, but we don't always appreciate the full significance of his redeeming work. We find ourselves falling into old ways, thinking and living in old patterns of lifestyle. We're looking for fullness and wholeness in this life in tangible but maybe temporary ways. We don't see that the coming of Jesus Christ has radically altered every aspect of our lives. From our thoughts to our affections, from our work to our studies, from our interactions with the world to our service in the church, every aspect of life comes under the reigning power and delivering grace of Jesus Christ? Are we going to work as those who have been freed from the curse? Are we parenting our children as those who are free from the curse? Are we living our lives as those who are free from the curse? Not f- completely free. There's a, there's a not yet aspect to our experiences yet as well. There is, of course, a future hope that's still coming, but But the power of His grace is here and now. Are we living our lives in that way? Or are we going about our day-to-day work? Are we going about our weekly work in a more worldly way? Are we thinking in more worldly ways? Are we living in more worldly ways? Is our Christianity just a Sunday thing? Or is it also a Monday through Saturday thing? And some of us, if not all of us, need to be encouraged need to be encouraged to know that that baby born on Christmas morning is enough to bear the weight of all your expectations, of all of your desires, of all of your hopes, that you can give to Him everything your heart desires and He will deal with you more perfectly than you could ever imagine, that you can surrender all of your cares, all of your struggles, all of your sorrows and know that He will lift them By His power, His shoulders are enough to bear the full weight of your sin and all of the curse that sin brings. All of us need to be reminded and encouraged by the power of the offering of Mary's child on our behalf. And we need to see that the incarnation provides the ultimate offering for our cleansing in this fallen world. Christmas, you see, holds out a promise. It holds out the promise of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on Good Friday. We live after the cross, and so we live after the sufficiency of that gift. The Word of God calls us to look at all of life. Sometimes even the things that we don't know to look at. And to see that they've been touched, not now by the curse of sin, but by the grace of God 
in Jesus Christ. That's why you can read passages like Leviticus 12 and hear the gospel, see Christ in them. That's why you can read books like Theology for Periods and hear the good news of the gospel. That's why we can live all of our lives in every aspect of our life in the light of grace. Because Jesus is enough. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what a gift You are to us. May our hearts forever stand in awe of You and worship Your most holy name. May we give ourselves in grateful devotion to You for what it is that You've accomplished on our behalf. Lord, the Gospel is on every page. And it claims us and 